Hi, I'm Eddie Moretti. Welcome to uh, the Vice Podcast. Today, my guest is Eddie Wong. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about a bunch of shit, and um, let's talk about the book, right? So you have a show on Vice called Fresh Off the Boat, and now you have a book called Fresh Off the Boat. Yes. So consistent how- branding. Yeah, very. Want that consistent yeah, branding? Yeah. Did you go to brand, brand, branding college or something? <laughs> um, I did visit Portland a couple times. Oh, right, because that's where um, uh, Wyatt and Kennedy, and yeah. All those people. That's the land of That of branded Andy. city. The whole city is branded. Yeah. So why did you, first of all, how is the book doing? Yo, the book did well. New York Times bestseller, yeah. right? So can't ask for too much more than that. Very happy. But really, you know. What does the, that mean? What is a New York uh, bestseller? What, how I many? It's You make a New list of like best-selling books. You sold the most books in a week or some shit like that. Right. So um, how long were you in the number one spot? Oh, how I was not number one. No, I was you not just number on the one. top ten. Top, top not even. I top something. It was the <laughs> hardcover bestsellers list, right? I was like in the 20s or something like that. Yeah. But it's cool. You know, like basically, uh, you know, I, I never thought I'd even make the list as a kid. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's dope and it's one of those things. I don't know. I never had like the highest expectations for myself I, I just never thought that i would ever like break the bamboo ceiling you know what i'm saying so anytime you kind of reach a milestone like new york times bestseller is cool yeah it's a good look and so um for coming from chinese school it's not bad yeah not bad um for anyone it's not bad yeah um what why did you write it and like first of all did you have an idea when you were a kid that you write, wanted to write yeah and uh and then why this book when so. I was 18, growing up in Orlando, Orlando was just a funny-ass town. I know. I have questions about Florida Everybody later, has questions. So I right. have questions about Florida. Yeah, but, <laughs> but no, like, you know, growing up in Orlando, it was just a weird urban sprawl kind of strange suburbia Hot, right? situation. Hot, muggy. There's lizards Landlock. outside. Yeah, the white people aren't even, like, they're just strange people out there. Because it's everything that's bad about the South without everything that's good about the South. You don't have that, like, neighborhood spirit, that, like, community Mm. that a lot of smaller southern towns have, southern cities. You don't really have much of the southern hospitality. It's a lot of carpetbaggers and transients. And so... It's all the ignorance and none of the, like, kind of accoutrements that go with it. There's none of the, like good pickled vegetables and sides that usually come with southern ignorance. So that's what I really hated about Orlando. But being Chinese, being pretty much the only Asian kid in most of the schools I went to, only one in the neighborhood, um, besides one or two other families, it was, I just knew I wanted to write about my American experience Mm. and how there's so many of us that fall through the cracks of like the American dream Mm. and, and the stories that are told to us every day. And I was like, my story's just not represented not in the mainstream, not in the subculture, it's just not represented. Um, Even when there's Asian people that come through, like, you know, like Jeremy Lin did his thing, Psy did his thing. Um, I love these dudes. Like, Margaret Cho was probably the only one as a kid I saw that came through, did her thing, and spoke about the experience. But I, you know, her experience is much different than mine. So as a kid, as an 18-year-old leaving for college, I knew I wanted to write a book like this one day. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, and and what was the process like, you know? Yeah, you know, I'm not a, this is funny, like my my editor Chris Jackson said, he's like, Eddie got a lot of skills, like like whether it's like Allen Iverson or something, he got a lot of skills as a writer you can't teach, but he got a lot of gaps in his writing. That's what your manager said. My editor. Your editor, editor, sorry. Speaklin Grau. He's like, just talking, he was like talking to me writing the book, There are things he'd say, like, Eddie, you need to do a little bit of setup in this chapter. I was like, why? Why can't we just jump in? And he was like, the questions I asked, it wasn't that they were elementary. It was just that, like, I had been untouched, like, untrained. All my ideas and my thoughts were very radical, and they were very original. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, but it was because I had never gone to, like, a school and been like, tell me how to write. Mm -hmm. And I don't really read modern, like, fiction, literature, I Do you read, read inter- a, a lot now? I read internet shit, and I read philosophy. Okay, like, wait, that's cool. So what's inter- define internet shit, and then tell us the philosophers yeah, that you're reading. Like, 
like, uh, you know, I'll read like Kara Crab articles. That's right, on Vice, to me. yeah. I'll read the Kid Miro. Um, I will read Grantland. I like Grantland a lot. There's mm. a lot of writers on Grantland. Jay Caspian Kang, Robert Brown. I like these cats. Um, you know, and then I'll read philosophy books. Like I'm reading Franco Berardi, and then um, there's this other philosophy book, like the the Image of the Young Girl or something. It's like a little red book. I forget the title. I just flipped through. But you know, you go to McNally Jackson and all those little like colored philosophy books. I'll go pick right. them up and just read through them. Right. It's because I like those things that kind of untrain my brain. I feel like society really conditions you so much that I try just not to touch anything that is going to further condition my mind. Yeah. I like to read in the margins. So, so how, how, how much time do you actually spend reading then? You're like a pretty busy guy. Like Yeah, I'm, a, I'm like a binge reader. Right. Right? It's almost like, <clears throat> like some dudes will just go on a fucking Molly binge for like two, three weeks or something. Like... I'll read, I'll, I'll go for two, three weeks and just read every day and not go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I'll stop and then I'll think about it and then I wanna go see it in the world. And it's it's not that I plan it that way, that's just kinda how it is. I'll, I'll get into a book and I'll really, really grapple with it right in the margins, I'll take my notes and then I'm like, all right, I gotta like chill and just let this shit breathe like mm. in my life. And I have a lot, I never read fiction, I almost never read fiction. Why not? Um, I like, I just love nonfiction. I, I, I love philosophy. I like to deal with like the current world politics. I'm not an escapist, right? Yeah. If I want to escape, I'll just smoke weed. <laughs> I'll watch a movie. If I want to slumber and escape like that Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream type shit, like I'll watch a movie. But, yeah. you know, I don't know. If you don't have time for fiction, people. basically. I'm just not interested. Yeah. The yeah. last fiction book I read that I liked was Juno Diaz, Oscar Wilde. And I only read that. Because my editor was, after reading the manuscript I sent in, he was like, yo, I know you never read it, but you got to go read Juno. And I was mm. like, all right, cool. And mm. I read it, and I fuck with it. Because we had a real struggle while writing this book, talking about how much vernacular do we want to use? How much slang do we want to use? And I said that I didn't want to filter my book. I didn't want to tame my book for like a reading, a, the normal reading audience. Right. Because... I pick up books at the store, and you read these books, and it's set up like, and the wind blew through the back window. Right, and right, she right. her auburn hair and right. ate her, like, fiddlesticks or whatever. And I'm just uh, like, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I like to immerse myself. Like, you guys do immersion journalism. Like, yeah. I really, I like to drop people into a scene and be like, figure your way out of it. And that's really, I think, from being a hip-hop kid. Yeah. When I listened to Wu-Tang for the first time, I did not know what the fuck was going on. But How old were you? Uh, 12. So you were old. in or or in Florida? Yeah. 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 I was eleven. I was eleven years old in Florida, listening to Wu, and I remember just kind of like trying to figure out what the RZA was saying, what the Jizza was saying, and it took years and years and years. But I loved it. It was cryptic to me. I'm really like influenced by the Dao De Ching, mm-hmm. and it's not a cop out. Like I purposely will drop you off in the scenes, into like thoughts, and be like, "Yo, work your way out of this." Mm grapple with it yeah and so language is one of those things too that 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 you know you've you know you're you're authentically using the language in the book that you do in real life yes what is it about you know your you have your own language it's not you know it's i've heard you talk some shit and it's like kind (laughs) of you know made up and you know definitely comes from the world of hip-hop but you've put things in there my own amalgamism of like yeah so what what does that you know so, you know, why is that, why is that the, the linguistic mode that makes you feel most comfortable? Because it feels like, like, I can, you know, be myself. I can explain the funny thing I want to explain with yeah. some weird, you know, uh, um, um, joke. Yeah. Why is that? I like to be able to do that because a lot of the other vocabulary, you know, like I can speak, I speak very well. I mean, I I passed the LSAT, I went to law school, I know how to use those words, but I had to teach myself to use those words and it's very like uncomfortable for me. I've always been like a circuitous explainer of things. You know what I mean? Like I, I use really strange metaphors and whatever to explain. And I always, it definitely comes from hip hop, WWF, and comics, right? Because my thing as a kid was, I loved when people created their own universes. Mm. Whether it was like Razor Ramon, whether it was um, MF Doom, 
whether it was even Wu Tang, it's like a Wu-Tang, whole universe. They're all superheroes, yeah. right? They have their own language, like stat, like that whole Shaolin shit was like yeah. another universe. And and I liked how every crew had like a way of dressing, uh, their own link. Like Outcast had like that just aliens, like AT aliens yeah. shit. And so for me, it wasn't any way of like really trying. Just as a kid, you and your crew, you always wanted to be different. Like me and my friends always wanted to be different than everyone else. And I think that's just like an artistic thing. And the way I explained it to, whether it was my editor or other people, uh, writers who were like, yo, you know, we've had reviews where people are like, this is rough English, this is sloppy English. And I'm like, no, you just don't get it. Right. That's what people said when the romantic poets first came around, like Wordsworth and those cats, like they did their own thing. Jack Kerouac did his own thing. And those were the people Look, those were very rough works, and they're not the most enjoyable things to read, but the level of difficulty and the statements they were making were the most powerful. Right. I thought that those, you have writers where they're, they're peaks, and then there's valleys, like over the centuries or whatever, but I thought the romantic poets were a peak, and people hate on them, but they were interesting, because they wanted to break the mold. Same with like the May movement in China and after the revolution, everyone wanted to go to the vernacular. And I think that that's kind of what the internet is doing to what, writing now. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit better? Yeah. Like, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, no, like, after, like, Mao did a lot of fucked up shit, obviously. <laughs> you know, burning books and things like that. But a lot of times, like, after these cultural movements and revolutions, one of the number one things people go to do is to, like, take the language from the ornate and make it the vernacular. And, and that's definitely what happened in China with their like literature and stuff like right, that. Right, so it, it, it became more colloquial? The colloquial, language, yeah, like it yeah, It became yeah. sort of like regular language rather Real than some like shit. exalted <laughs> poetic yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, what's, so I know you, you did mention Mao in the book and that there was some good stuff to come out of the revolution. What's your family's experience with the revolution? Well, what was... My grandfather, grandmother on both sides, all my aunts and uncles were born in China and they all fled. So after the KMT loss, they all fled to Taiwan. Why? Um, well, because they were on the losing side. You know, like they left with Chiang Kai-shek. Right. They were all Chiang Kai-shek supporters. Okay, so describe that because you don't really go into detail in the yeah. book. Like, did they, like, how deep were they into politics? My grandfather on my father's side. Um, my great-grandfather was a county mayor in Hunan in the last dynasty, right? So he died. My grandfather on my father's side was in the internal ministry of Taiwan when right. Chiang Kai-shek you talked went about over. That, yeah. So he was very involved in the politics. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side was not that involved. He was just, uh, he would make mantel and sell them on the street. And he fled to Taiwan. And the best story, one of the best stories of him and my grandmother, he would sell the bread on the street and there was this one businessman, and actually from Hunan as well, from my father's, pro- my father's family's province, and this guy would come by the manto every day, and manto is almost like a bagel to Chinese or Taiwanese people. You, you eat it in the morning, it's yeah. just a big starch, gets it's you through the f- yeah, day. Fried bread. Fried, yeah. Oh, no, steamed bread. Fr- steamed steam bread. Steam bread. Yeah. And you eat it. This guy was like, came by and said, look, your family every day is so consistent. You got your daughters out here working, your son is out here working, the whole family is here selling these buns. You know, I have a textile factory and the family that works for me has not shown up for like a couple weeks. Do you guys want to come work in this factory? And they dropped everything and went. That's your grandfather dropped it. Grandfather on my mother's on, side. On brought, your mother's side. So, so your family. dad's side was more political, yeah. involved in the government. Yeah. Your mom's side uh, is... Textiles. Te- textiles, but before that... Sweatshops. Sweatshops, yeah. but before that, selling uh, mantle on the, yeah, on the mantle, street. Yeah, mantle, yep. So, poor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, they, they went and they worked hard, and my grandfather ended up opening his own textile factory years later. In, 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 in Taiwan. In Taiwan. He learned and he did it himself. And then that was the... Bridge textiles is what got you to America, essentially. My mother, M- mother's yeah, my side, mother, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. and they came and they opened a furniture store in America. Yeah, in uh, in Florida. It, no, no, in Northern Virginia. In Northern DC. Virginia, yeah, they right. came there first. They opened better homes. Okay, right out there. So, 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 okay, I got it. On your father's it's side, tricky, yeah, yeah. On your father's side, 
Um, what was the so my the, the way they got America. over was one of my uncles, Uncle Joe, who's still alive, love Uncle Joe. He came over. He went to Virginia Tech, and he studied. He became an engineer, and he built three of the major bridges in D.C. Participated in right. building three of the major bridges in D.C. Then they allowed my father to come over. My father was the ill street kid, is a troublemaker. And my yeah, grandma, he, basically, after he got out of the army in Taiwan, even in the army, he was a troublemaker. Yeah. He got out of the army, my grandma sent him to live with my uncle, Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe took away his car, put him to work. So you, Uncle Joe's old, you're, uh, you're older, you're older than uncle. your dad. Yeah, 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 yeah the yeah, oldest, yeah. So he's, he's the, the old, oldest son. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so what year was that? What, what year did the, the Wongs come to America? I, I think it was like, I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was, 77 or 78 right right and i was born in 82 yeah 82 they they might have come over then and uh 77 78 and um but you were born in 82 but not here in america oh no, no i was born here you're born here in my america, parents right? my dad knocked my mom up at a house party <laughs> and and i was conceived at college park yeah <laughs> so you you say you say you say in the book you say whether it was another communist scare or even or the, the even greener pastures of America, no one ever gives you a straight answer as to why they came to America. Yeah. What, why don't they give you a straight answer? I think it's a little to them. They love, they love Taiwan. That, that's they clear from the book. Taiwan. They miss it a lot, right? They miss it a lot. And even in Taiwan, they still feel a strong connection to China. And if you watch the Taiwan episode we did on the Fresh Off the Boat, our fixer George even talks about it. He's like, there is like a brotherhood and a kinship between the people in Taiwan and the people in China. Not the Aboriginal Taiwanese, maybe not the you know original immigrants, um, even the ones from Fujian or Fuzhou, but at least that Chinese migration from Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan. Um, there's a lot of us descended from those people that, that made that original migration with Chiang Kai-shek, and we have, we still have a bond to China. Yeah. We still like feel a, a brotherhood with it. And I think my parents, when they come here, they don't want to tell you, it's, it's almost sad to talk, talk bad about where you left, right? They love the place, so they yeah. don't want to talk bad about it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very, it was opportunity, and they were scared of another like revolution, another yeah. communist scare, a takeover. Yeah. And America's been that place uh, you can't take it away from America at all. It's been that place where you can come, you feel relatively safe, you feel like- <laughs> Relatively. Yeah, you feel relatively safe, you feel the, the politics are relatively stable, uh, you have an opportunity to, to, to make money that you don't in other places, the standard of living is higher, and, and that's why they came. But a lot of time, they, it was hard for them because when they came, they were made fun of all the time, and they didn't fit in, and that's why they've created Chinatowns. Chinese people are like very isolationist, I think. Right. <clears throat> in all of the political movements, whether it was like building an entire wall around the country, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or right now like shutting down all access to internet outside the country, or coming to America and building Chinatowns. It's like, we, we have a little bit of an isolationist mentality. That's historical though, right? That's... I think it's historical. Right. You know, people are gonna like disagree with me and that's fine, I don't speak for all Chinese. This is my opinion. Sure. It, what I see, I see we built a wall. <laughs> there's no Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no Google and we built a wall. Yeah. <laughs> kind of strange. But you know, uh, you know, e even my father said this, after, I, I, it's hard for me to give you an answer because there isn't, they always dance around it. When we talk, they go, oh, it's opportunity. They try to give you a one-word answer. Yeah. My father, after he read the book, the, the funniest thing he said, and it was a little sad, and it's, it's like bittersweet, he said to me, I'm sorry. I said, wow. you, it's good, don't worry about it. Like, I thought he was talking about like hitting me and the abuse, and like, don't worry about it, it's fine, man, you had to do it. And he goes, no, 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 I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking, don't, don't big yourself up. He was like, I'm sorry, I brought our family to America, and I was like, Whoa. I was like, dude, we're good. Like, we did it. Like, why do you feel that way? He goes, it was hard for me when I came over. It was hard for me in my 20s. People made it very difficult for me. And, and at times I was like ashamed of, not ashamed. He's like, I was, just, I was just mad at how much people 
made fun of me and things like that and gave me a hard time and how I didn't have the same opportunities other Americans have. But he's like, I had no idea how hard it was to grow up here. He's like, I didn't realize when I came what I was putting my children into. He's like, because you guys had to live through this from a young age. Um, and he was like, I'm sorry. And I was like, Dad, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry because we grew up in this. We've navigated this. We've kind of, in a way, conquered this in our, in our own method. We are part of America. America is part of us. You cannot separate the two. Um, let, 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 let's talk about that yeah. for a bit. Actually, most of my questions are about that idea of you know, you Let me just take a sip of this unsponsored drink real quick. <laughs> About you um, um, growing up here in America, you know, you already described a little bit about f what Florida was like, what Orlando was like, um, but you say in the book, you know, the, those first few years in Orlando, I hated being Chinese. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about by the Bible and religion. Um, there's this moment with a teacher, Miss yeah. Truex. Oh, she's the worst. So, yeah, worst. just explain how, 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 how much did you hate being Chinese growing up in Florida? Yo, I really, really was like, why can't I just be normal like everybody else? It, it was, the, the thing was, it was just, I'm sick of being weird. It wasn't even Chinese as much as like, I just don't want to be different. When you're a kid, you want to have friends, you want to be invited to fucking birthday parties, you want to get fucking presents like everybody else? You want to get Christmas cards like everybody else? I just want to be normal. You don't understand as a kid the like value of difference. Mm. You have like your very simple needs as a child. So that- You want to belong. I want to belong. I was sick of being an outcast, sick of being picked on, I always getting like pushed down on the floor, teachers making fun of me and um, yeah, I was always, I had to eat soap. They'd always make me eat soap. Why? Because I didn't swearing. know about the Bible. So we would always, these were private schools. And I remember one of the first things was, I saw Adam and Eve and I saw the pictures. And I, I remember as like a five or six year old, I said, why is Adam and Eve white? And I'm, I look like this, they don't look like me. And they literally just picked me up and took me outside the room. They Are you like, kidding? Get this kid out of the room. Who did? The teacher. The teacher. Get yeah, yeah, the yeah. fuck out. Yeah. And then I remember I asked again. Was when this I got, like a Christian school? Christian school, Christian fellowship. Yeah. They made me eat soap. And then so when I got. They took you to the class because you questioned Adam and Eve's race. Race. And yeah. then they made you eat soap. Yeah. It's what do you almost mean? like, like a, how do you eat soap, by the they way? Just like a literally here, take here's the a bar piece. of soap and make you put it in your mouth. Do they still do this? This was like in the 80s, like 88, 89 was the year. <laughs> but like they put me in there. This and, is awesome. And yeah, they had me eat soap. Awesomely bad. I'm a natural lefty, made right. me use my right hand. And uh, it so was. So you had to swallow it? The soap? Yeah. No, they just make you, you just hold, it, hold in it in your mouth. And then you're just like, Ugh, yeah, it's gagging. Nasty. So you don't ask yeah. questions anymore. That's fucked up. Yeah. Then so, I got older, I asked Adam and Eve again, and they were like, Tower of Babel. And I'm like, I don't think it makes sense that this tower fell and then there was colored people. And they were just like, out, get out, so, you know, even in third grade. Yeah, that's pretty, like, I don't know, extreme. Yeah. Was it like that, uh, it was, uh, generally it was like that. speaking, in Florida? Were you confronted by a lot of, you know, I don't know, fundamentalist Christianity? Yeah, I don't think people realize that in the 80s, in, in the South, in Orlando, Florida, which some people don't even consider the South, there's a lot of that going on. Mm. There's a lot of that stuff going on. It, you know, my brothers faced a lot of similar things, but... Yeah, I, I kind of caught, caught the tail end of it. Yeah. I doubt it's still going on now. Yeah. But I remember even they had stickers on books that were like, evolution is just a theory. They didn't even call it evolution. Like natural selection is a theory. And there was always those stickers on books. Wow. I remember that. Yeah. So what's your take on religion now and Christianity? What? I'm a spiritual dude. Yeah. I'm a very spiritual dude. I believe that like there is a universe beyond us. There's like karmic spirits. There's... There, I, I do think that there is some sort of be a good person and there is not a reward, but like you have a duty to be a good person. Are your parents religious? My parents are Buddhist, but they're not like practicing Buddhist. They're kind of like non-practicing Jewish people. <laughs> but uh, me, I just, 
I definitely, I believe in karma. I believe in the golden rule, doing to others as mm. you would like them to do unto you. And uh, I talk to my grandparents a lot. You I don't know. You, you, you say uh, the easiest way to, for Americans to make sense of Chinese history is to compare it to Jewish history. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, does there's just go, a lot of parallels. Yeah, does that, do you, do you extend that all the way, you know, into religion? The religions are different because Buddhism, the, at, at the core of it, a lot of it is the belief that life is suffering. Um, Which probably is yeah, pretty... Yeah, now that you, I think about it, Jewish Woody Allen thought, would probably agree yeah, with that. Yeah. He probably thinks life is suffering too. Yeah. <laughs> life, is, life is about suffering and banging Asian chicks, so it's probably pretty <laughs> similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, no, and, and the Tao Te Ching though, the Tao Te Ching is super ill. It's, that's less of a religion than it is a philosophy. And I, I think everyone should read the Tao Te Ching. That, that book I think has such a good handle mm. on like the human spirit. I love, I love that book. That book's very good. Okay, I need, a, I need a quote from your book now. Yeah. I'm gonna roast you with the shit that you've been saying about everyone. Um, you know, so I'm just gonna read this pa passage here. Like, yeah. you know, I guess it's, the question is, you know, how you define your Americanness. Um, because you say here in the book, look, legally I've always been a citizen, I was born here, but even now you'll never see me hold an American flag. You know, what follows in the paragraph. Yeah. You, you're, you're, you love New York, but yeah. you feel New York is not really America, it's like an international city, so. <clears throat> Explain, yeah. how American are you? In a funny way, the day that the book released, I wore this American flag poncho to our like Barnes and Nobles event. On purpose? Yeah, on purpose, and kind of in an ironic, funny way mm. to be like, yo, today I'm an American. You know, because, mm -hmm. <clears throat> man, I can't, I can't front. Um, I definitely don't think that people in America have the same opportunities. I think that depending on race, your opportunities are reflect like, the, the, the level of opportunities that you receive are definitely affected by race. Yeah. Um, not to blow hot air up your ass. Businesses like Vice yeah. that are trying to represent people in the margins, people that are different, trying to give everyone a voice are definitely fixing that problem, right? <clears throat> I never, I was never comfortable with other places I worked mm. that wanted me to kind of be Asian Guy Fieri, you know? or or wanted me to kind of curb who I was and curb my speech to fit into like what they thought how people should behave right. in public. I don't fuck with that. And, and I definitely think that America is, there's no middle class here even. Like not even like, let's get, let's get beyond race. Like let's talk about America in general. Like 0.04% of, of America holds like all the bread. Right. Not even the 1%. You know, the 1% right. is almost like a, a, a misnomer because it's the 0.04%. Yeah. And then after that, it just drops off. It drops off. And if you think about it, Kobe Bryant is probably middle class. Yeah. Like Ta entertainers are middle class. Right. Startup guys are middle class. And that's what you identify with. I'm not even on that. You know what I get paid. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I mean, Sarush might be middle class. Sarush might not. Sarush probably lower middle class yeah. if you really look at the metrics yeah. of it all. So, I think that, you know, I love America. I, I would not live anywhere else, right? I choose to live here. I have the power to live other places and I choose to live here. I love the people here. I love a lot of my opportunities here. But do I buy into this like American dream, equality? Do I think we actually have the rights that the Bill of Rights talks about? No, I don't think so. I think that a lot of the teeth has been taken out of our social contract. I think that big business has pulled the chair out on the social contract. And so I can't fully support that. But is there a country out there that I can fully support? Probably not. Right. There isn't. So is this the best that there is? Yes. D d t tell us about this, because um, you basically encountered a bit of this 0.04%, as you call it, it, in class at Rollins. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, this one particular English class, Dr. Jones's class, yeah. and tell us, you know, explain the school and, and what you saw there. The school yeah. is funny, and, and there was this guy, it was, a good, it was a writer, and I think he was like from People Magazine or something, he came to school once and he said, 
Rollins, if you want to explain it to people, is the only time its names dropped is in American Psycho, right? They right. name drop it in American Psycho. Um, the Mad Dog from Mike and the Mad Dog is from Rollins, right. Mr. Rogers, but they're like, beyond that, nobody knows this place. The only thing they know is that it's a place to send your daughter if you don't want anything to happen to her. But if, if something you... happens to her, it's from the right guy. Because <laughs> people just have bread out there. Right. And um, it was wild. I ran into kids that were 18 years old that had their own yachts. I knew a kid that would like, he was a really cool kid actually, would leave class to go marlin fishing. Right. I was <laughs> That's like, pretty cool. Young I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, there wasn't even hashtags, but that kid would have been young Hemingway. And um, there was, it was just extreme money, extreme money. Like, people were the heir to like the Tupperware fortune and things like that. Um, it was crazy, but it was also crazy to see these kids and how much power they had, how much power would be transferred to them, and how little they were connected to the greater society. They were so insulated, they were so unaware of what was going on outside of them, that actually the kid that went marlin fishing was one of the only ones that was actually like connected and understood. I thought fishing had a lot to do with it. Right. He's a cool kid, but you know, overall, you met a lot of these people, like children of government officials, children of like presidents and vice presidents of companies, and, it was just really scary to know that these kids would be running the world. But you go a little further because it's not just that they're unaware. I think you say, you know, that they were hustling you. They would, you know, the, the anecdote is in the book is about, yeah. you know, um, well, what, you know, do you believe in welfare? Yeah. Instead of giving you a straight answer, these kids would run around with. They long, were like media long, trained. Long, these motherfuckers yeah, they, are like <laughs> media trained. Long, but 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 you think. Right, that yeah. they were fucking with you and yeah. they were bullshitting, and that what they were really saying is, I really don't give a shit about poor people. Yeah. So is that was it that bad? Yeah. The yeah. disconnect was insidious. It was like they actually knew, but wanted to be. They were the type of people that were like, let's not talk politics and religion. Let's not talk politics and religion because they already know how they feel and they know how they're gonna impress their opinion. Right. You know, they're gonna, how they're gonna exert their influence. So when you actually try to grapple with them, it's just like, yeah. you know, elusive. Yeah. They're very elusive. Yeah. And what, so, what year was that that you were at I was there, 2001. Right. I was in class at Rollins when 9-11 happened. Right. And that was some wild shit, just to see how people responded and things like yeah. that. That was, that was a very It's an important time. point, part of the book too, your reaction to 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Um, Man, it's, it's hard to talk about, you know, when you get to, this is a cool thing about writing a book. I like books and I like writing because you get to spend time with yourself and make sure you get it right. You reflect? Yeah, you reflect, you sit, you make sure you get it right. And, and talking about feelings in 9-11 is one of those things that you do not want to get wrong. Yeah. And my thing, I remember I was in a class called Social Problems, literally in a class called Social Problems. And we see on the television, they just went down and we were just, Everybody lost their shit, and people started running around the building. Oh my God, oh my God, because so many kids at Rollins were from New York. And it was interesting, too, because we had, we had kids in class who their parents were you know, government officials in D.C. who worked downtown in New York. Everyone, it was kind of affected. But um, immediately, I'm, I'm sure this happened around the nation, not just where I was at Rollins College, but... There was a lot of just pure anger. And there was a lot of like anti-Islamic sentiment. There, I remember this girl started wearing, these girls started wearing American flag mini skirts with like the ass hanging out. And I was just like, like that's dope, but <laughs> united we stand. <laughs> Hose for America. Really? But like, wow. yeah, it was. It was just like the the way they expressed their patriotism was crazy yeah. and weird, and it was very much like when you saw people celebrating Osama bin Laden's death. Right, it was kind of surreal to me when these people were cheering, like the kid being caught in Boston this weekend. That was very surreal to me. Like these people deserve everything they get. Yeah. You know, obviously these people that we captured, they deserve everything we get. But like human to human. I feel like you take the higher road and you just, you know, like I would never go celebrate somebody's, he's dead, you got him. 
So, so, so um, some of this, you know, um, patriotism after 9-11 kind of freaked you out? Freaked me out a little. I, it, it is very dope to see people who, like, love their country. That is cool to me. You know, like, Americans who love their country, that's cool to me. And, and love it in a passionate way is cool. There were people who were very articulate about how they felt and, and how they felt like it was an attack on a way of life. You know, I thought those were pretty, you know, valid, valid sentiments and things like that. But like, the hate against an entire group of people, the hate against an entire religion, which actually has nothing to do with these, these radicals, did they have nothing to do with what they're talking about, you know? And that's the funny thing with war in countries in general, not to get like OD about it, but these wars they're fighting, it's like you're not sending these guys out there. Right. I'm not sending right. them out there. They say they're for us, they say it's for our way of life, but I always question it. I'm just like, who is this for, really? Because right. I don't want to fight. What, 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 you know, you're constructing like a really interesting um, portrait of yourself as like a, uh, an American kid who's torn between different. Um, I'm too, I'm torn between the idea of America and what it actually is. Right, right. Can you explain a little bit this discussion of authentic authenticity um, and what it means to be the you know authentic for you? Um, I, you know, in the in the book, there's this whole passage here about you know you can't win basically you don't know what to be in order to win and you never feel really truly yourself so you know what fuck it authentic to yourself is something i like um thought about for a long time a lot of philosophers talk about it, and this is like where i tried to grapple with the issue is like the essential self right is right. there essential self is there like one eddie moretti inside you and you try to peel back the layers and you try to find it but the thing is is that i realized at least my philosophy on it my my thinking and feeling is that the self evolves. The self is constantly reinventing and evolving itself. And in the funniest fucking way, the one thing that rang true to me that made all of it make sense is motherfucking Harry Potter, right? Boy. Harry Potter got the illest quote, I think in book one, when he's talking about, like, I don't, I wanna be in Gryffindor, I wanna be in the good kid's school, I don't wanna be in the snake kid's school, right? And he's like, what if they choose me to go to the bad school? And I think it's like the ill wizard dude, I forget his name, Gandalf, what, is Gandalf from fucking Lord of the no, Rings? I think or Gandalf is Lord, Lord of the Rings, yeah. whatever, the dude, I think it's the I, same dude plays. I don't him. read those books. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, the ill wizard dude is like, look, you choose to be who you, you have a choice in who you are. And that's powerful to me. That's very powerful to me. And that's, it's so funny, it comes from here. You never know where you're gonna learn shit from. <laughs> but the choice to be an American, yeah. the choice to like, be Chinese and represent like the place where like my blood and, and, and is from, my history is from, the choice to like also identify with Taiwan, it's, that's, that's my choice. I used to allow other people's expectation and other people's understanding of identity reflect on me and control me and arrest me in a lot of ways. But the thing that liberated me was to understand that there's nature, there's nurture, but there's choice. And the third leg of it that they don't talk about is choice. Because let's say you, you have, have a lot of fun with choice in your life. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, this is how I want to dress. These are the books I want to read. These yeah. are the books I don't want to read. I want to do a show with Vice. Yeah. I want to do something else. I want to write a book. Yeah. You're having fun uh, in the choosing part of life, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. And I'm creating my own education or like, you know, it, it's, it's, like colleges are doing the same thing, interdisciplinary. Yeah, you know, like they're yeah. understanding that this is how like the mind works. This is how like we it's operate. It's more normal. Postmodern. This right. is like very, very postmodern. And the thing is, is that I really feel that we've always people read astrology. Yeah. It's like you give yourself up to this. Yeah. You give yourself up to your genetics. You give yourself up to environment. Oh, I'm from Boston. I'm from Southie. This is the way I am. I'm from New York. This is the way I am. You have a choice. So you're, you're a little... It's so, almost lazy, so right? Don't you think it's lazy to be like, everything's predetermined for me because of my genetics? Yes, my but, I, but, I, but, I, but we're not interviewing me, but if I would answer that question, yeah. I would say society is predicated on people being as you know, lazy as 
you know, possible in a way, just yeah. to get through things and not complicate life because yeah. it's already complicated. Like I'm Muslim because my parents are Muslim. I'm yeah, Baptist just because my parents are. Yeah, I, you got a question? Yeah, I go to McDonald's just because it's you know what I do. Yeah. Um, but so you're, you're kind of actively choosing the kind of American you want to be. Yeah. But you're also a little disappointed or frustrated with Chinese American. Your, yeah. Your your peers, your yeah. you know, like your your peeps. Yeah, right? I'm fair, man. I shoot you know? the fair one. Like yeah. whoever it is, like I I really always give my honest opinion of yeah. shit. So yeah, that was one of the things I'm quoting that really annoyed me about growing up Chinese in the states. Even if you wanted to roll with the Chinese Taiwanese kids, they were barely any. There were barely any around, and the ones that were around had lost their culture and identity. Yeah. So, how disappointed are you? And in, in you know, what are they missing out on? You know. The funny thing is, is a lot of these Chinese kids that don't speak Chinese, or they don't cook, or they don't know how to celebrate the New Year, or they don't know a lot of the traditions and religion. I think they're insecure about their identity, and they start to hang on to stereotypes and stigmas, and then. It's like, yo, Eddie, you dress this way, therefore you must not be Chinese. Eddie, you talk this way, therefore you must not be Chinese. Eddie, you play basketball like a black person, you therefore must not be Chinese. Like people literally would say things like that. Do a lot of Chinese, you know, your generation, first, you know, uh, uh, first generation American Chinese um, and Taiwanese are, are they really forgetting their culture? Are they really not yeah. ad adopting? Is it a real problem? Yeah, I think it's a real problem. A lot of kids lose their language. I was just Fast, at, right? Yeah, I was just at my Chinese herbal doctor, my herbalist. I go to him all the time for most of my ailments unless I'm getting like blood work and shit. But I went to go see him. One of my, yeah, I brought one of my cooks at work. His mother had a problem, so I brought her to the doctor. And I see him, and his son was there. And I was like, yo, your dad is the illest. Like, you gotta learn this shit from your dad. And he's like, I would, but I don't speak Chinese. And it was so sad. I was like, your dad has held down Chinatown on Mott Street. These guys on Mott and Bayard had this like little Chinese herbal shop for I think upwards of 35 years now. Wow. Everybody goes Just to like him. Just like authentic. Auth yeah. As authentic as it gets. Yeah, yeah. and and. Um, I don't go there because it's like authentic or dingy or whatever, but it's like he cures people. He's cured someone with leukemia before, wow. like this guy, and, and people know it. And I go to him, um, and it was so sad to be like, your son doesn't speak Chinese. He can't learn this. And I was like, is there anyone that is your like disciple, your student? He said, nope. And I was like, I'll, I'll come learn this shit from you. And he was like, it's years like you want to spend 20 years and i was like if you had told me that when i was 18 yes hmm. i would have dedicated my like that practice is so ill you know to yeah. be that kind of doctor it's i'll bring you got to come I yeah, gotta bring I'll, you I'll, I'll, it's I'll very come. very good but no i think a lot of the culture is being lost a lot of the right. culture is being lost luckily it's still preserved in china but even in china people are in such a rush to westernize and that's the scary part of the internet right we chase trends like Countries, literally, civilizations chase trends. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's not just people like copping sneakers. It's like the internet, the speed of things, you can actually like turn your civilization on its head in a matter of two to three years now with the internet yeah. and the things that are available. And it's scary yeah. because before you have a time to test things, before you have a chance to see the side effects, before you have a chance to see like the overall detriment to society, aftershock of the changes, you can turn your civilization on its head and not be able to go back. Right. Like we've let a lot of genies out of the bottle with whether it's fracking, you know, um, even just original oil drilling, the industrial revolution, like there's a lot of genies we can't put back in the bottle. Right. And you can, the internet enables more of that shit. So ta Taiwan was a turning point for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I Taiwan mean, lot, was crazy. Lot like your life kind of changed after that trip. So that was your first trip there, right? How old yeah. were you? Yeah, Taiwan was awesome. I was about, I was 19, my, yeah, just turned 20. I think I just turned 20. So what year are we talking about? 2000, it was the summer of 2002. Right. So I just turned 20, summer of 2002 I went. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that was a life-changing trip. That was... That was a life-changing trip for me 
to go out to Taiwan. When I had went, when I was younger, I was just trying to find Jordans in video games and eat Chinese food, and it was delicious, but I still wanted to be normal. Right. And when you're a kid, you pay so much attention to things like, oh, the, the laundry is moldy, it smells nasty, why is there cockroaches in auntie's apartment, you know? Yeah. Why are you motherfuckers out here playing basketball in sandals? Yeah. So it's all little <laughs> shit like that, like why I got athlete's foot, <laughs> right. what is going on out here? But when I came back as a 20-year-old, I didn't mind it as much. Moldy right. clothes, whatever. Cockroaches, whatever. Like, and it wasn't even that bad. Uh, Taiwan had progressed right. as a country, so standard of living was actually quite good. But I got to explore, and I remember the thing that hit me hardest. Didn't realize it as a 12-year-old. As a 20-year-old, it hit me like a fucking just monsoon. As soon as I got in the airport, I saw all Asian people, Taiwanese, Chinese, Japanese, whatever. I saw all Asian people. There was not like a white person or a black person to be seen or a Hispanic person. It was all Asian. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it made me realize I'm not weird. I'm actually in the globe the majority. Right. <laughs> there's a lot of us, motherfuckers. More, more than us than anyone else. Yeah, and I was like, there's doctors, there's engineers, there's cab drivers, there's skateboard kids. And I was like, I'm not weird. There's a whole country with people like me. Did you feel at home? I did, I did. I immediately felt at home. And they adopted me too. They were like, yo, you're American, but like the funny, this is a cool thing about Taiwan and China. They will point out all your differences, but they want to claim you. Mm. They're like, you're still ours. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty neat. Like that was, that was pretty, like I never say neat. Like it's just like so fucking like that heartwarming moment that you talk like a 15-year-old girl. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. that was neat. But, yeah. like, it really was. It really was on some, like, back to the motherland shit. And yeah. you go, and, and people were so excited to show you the country, show you where your parents used to live, show you where your aunts used to live, and just, like, be like, this is you. This, so is, this is your shit. You, you're going to go back. I go back all the time. You go back all the time. But you're going back soon, right? Yeah, I'm going to go back this summer. So explain what you're doing this summer. Then. Yeah, this summer for book two... It's an extension of that idea of choice. And to go back to China, I'm gonna go to um, Chengdu in Sichuan province, uh, right next to where my father's family's from in Hunan, neighboring province. And I'm going to live in an apartment and cook downstairs in the stall five days a week, serving, I think I wanna cook Taiwanese food in Sichuan, China. I think that'll be really cool to cook Taiwanese food there, see how people react to my food, because I have my ideas of Chinese food, I have my understanding that comes from the home, mm. but I wanna see what their understanding is, because mine comes from the Taiwanese Chinese home. This is, this is China China. Mm. So it's very interesting to see, I think that'll be cool, and I wanna see like how the society embraces me. And I know what the struggle is like as an American business person, as an, as an individual in America, as a creative person in America. I wanna see as much as I can what that struggle is in China. Forget about for a second that you're doing this show with us. Yeah. Um, you're going to do this project in China. Um, you know, why, why, why another food book? Why another food show? What, what is, what, why, why does the world need this? Can you explain? Yeah, this is the thing is I, I think constantly, you know, you may be mad at me saying this, I don't feel like our show is even a food show and I know that book two is not a food book, just like this wasn't really a food book. The food thing is a trap, right? I use food as a trap, just like cheese for mice, you know, because a lot of times you say, hey, we're gonna write a book about Choice and identity in China. Fucking tune in. <laughs> People don't want to tune in that shit. Right. right. But the food is a trap. I tell you I'm going to go cook food in China. We're going to see lots of interesting things. And I show you these interesting things. But it's a trap. But it works. It works. It's People got to eat. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking uh, you, you were born in the 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, though general cuisine and food literacy in America has kind of gotten better. Much better. Coast Much to coast, better. right? For yeah. sure in the 
big cities, yeah. it's like kind of amazing. Like yeah. New York right now is amazing. Yeah. You go to the top, you know, eight to ten cities in America, you're gonna find some really fucking cool shit. Yes. Um, but um, but but like you said, it's a trick, right? Yeah. To educate people and introduce them and bring a little more choice into their lives. Yeah. But it's working, right? Yeah. I mean, I love this this like this interview. What the things we're talking about, I talk about forever. The thing is, I realized that to get people to you know, it's it's that fucking shit. The, the sugar for the medicine to go yeah. down, like like titties and soup dumplings sell. Yeah, you know what I mean. People want to see titties and soup dumplings. Yeah. So, but but give so them one. It, it it works, <laughs> yeah. but it's not always done. There's you do it, and you know Anthony Bourdain does it for sure. There's that model of I'm actually using food to learn more about the world around me, yes. and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm going to bring that to you. Then, then there is walking into the Food Network on the flip side of things. <laughs> yeah. So describe that, like why you were, why you knew from the day you walked into their offices that, oh, fuck, this might not actually work out. Yeah, you know, Food Network is a vocational channel, right? Just like a vocational school, like right. the, in the University of Phoenix or some shit. The thing, like, I'll explain it this way. I always told people, it doesn't matter what you decide your major is in college. Go get a liberal art, whether it's philosophy, music, art, history, those are just purely lenses to understand the world and its inhabitants through, all right? Those are just disciplines and lenses you put on to see and to analyze and to understand yourself and others. Music is that way, you do it with noisy, we do it with food, um, we do it with art, we do it with music. Um, that's all, that's what subculture is. Like subculture is just something that people connect with they feel passionate about, it speaks to them, but then it's used as a vehicle to like understand everything else. Right, but it's not, yeah, it's not stuck in the dish itself. No, no, it's all like, you know, it's beyond the plate. You go to the Food Network, it's like stand and stir, all right, here, here it is. Like you could actually do amazing stand and stir shows that extend beyond that pot and talk about the family and where you got the ingredients and you know, you could actually have an ill talking head show with a stand and stir like that. Like storytelling kind of over a Yeah, I've been talking to people I wanna do something like that, like a stand and stir talking head show. But, cause food is such an ill trap. It's, it's beautiful, like that's what you've been catching mammals with for centuries is food. This is what you will get them with. And right. so the Food Network I don't think understands it and I don't think they want to have like a higher calling, you know, I want to be on like the Hebrew National of Networks, you know, we answer to a higher power, <laughs> you know? So I, I just have like a, a much bigger agenda in terms of like speaking to people who watch what we're doing. Otherwise, I mean, I'm not a pretty motherfucker, right? Uh, it's like the only, the only, the only reason I'm pretty. here, <laughs> thank you, but the reason I'm I here is because I wouldn't use the I word got, pretty, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like I have, I have ideas and, and I want to get those across and we're using food to do that because the food will draw you in. And um, it's, it's, you know, Muhammad Ali used boxing. Mm. Um, a lot, Charles Barkley used basketball. But that's the thing, whatever it is that speaks to you, whatever skill that you have to share with people, use that skill to like talk about the human spirit. And that's what it is. I think that's a perfect place to end. Word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to season two. Yo, I'm and, super hyped. Yeah, I'm hyped. And yeah. um, I'm looking forward to this new book in China because yeah. I think if anyone's going to go there and let us know what it's really like yeah. on the street, yeah. um, it's going to be you. Yeah, and I want to be a bridge between the American Chinese, the Chinese Chinese, and, and you know, Street food diplomacy. I like that. <laughs> That's yeah. what it should be called. Yes. The book. The books. Yes. Food. Yes. Yes. Definitely, man. Dumpling diplomacy. Some funny <laughs> shit. <laughs> okay. Thanks, buddy. Thank Good you, to man. See you. Thank you. Good shit. All right.